Uh, just one quick reminder before we dive into the Word, and that is that um, next Sunday is going to be our last time gathering as two services. Starting on the 30th of May, we will all be united together as one body in one place at one time, and I can't tell you how delighted I am for that. See, the first service does not have the energy that you have. Uh, you need to bring that together with them, and so I'm excited about that as well. <laughs> That's right, they're still asleep at that time. Uh, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, and I'd like you to look down to verse 18. Over the past several weeks, we've been examining two major questions of the Bible. We've been asking, what is the message of the Bible, and what is the mission of the Bible? And we've seen so far that the gospel, or the good news of Jesus, is about spiritual and eternal life that we receive by grace through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ at the cross. And because we have believed that truth, the Scripture reveals that we are called to be the church and to live a lifestyle of discipleship. And today, we are going to set our attention on our calling to share the good news of Jesus with others, which is called evangelism. We are called to make disciples and be discipled, and we are called to commit our lives with other disciples. Those are the three main things we've been focusing on for the last three weeks. So let's go now to the Lord and ask His assistance as we come to His Word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank You so much for this time that we have around Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would use this time to help us understand what it means to be faithful and obedient to the calling that You have given to every believer. God, I ask that You would help us to be open with those around us to communicating the good news of what You have done for us. Lord, if we have been redeemed, how could we help but say so? Father, help us today to be delighting in You and rejoicing in You as we hear Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You would convict and give encouragement so that we might go out of this place and put into action what we learned this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever you are researching any kind of subject matter, what's going to determine whether or not you come to the right conclusions is whether or not you're asking the right questions. And one of the best ways to begin is asking what they call the five W's and an H. You know what those questions are. Who, what, why, when, where, and how. And that is how we are going to begin our approach to exploring the concept of evangelism this morning. Let's begin by getting our definition straight by asking the question, what is evangelism? Now, to be clear, I want you to understand that this morning I am predominantly going to be speaking about personal evangelism. When we talked a couple of weeks ago about being the church, I talked about the nature of being a testimony and a witness as a corporate body. And although that is a part of evangelism, that's not really our focus this morning. Also, we have missionaries that we support who do evangelism, and their entire life is dedicated to evangelizing a specific place. That is also not necessarily what I am speaking about this morning. I am talking about personal evangelism. I am talking about you. If you are joining us in reading through the Bible in a year here at Gateway, then tomorrow you are going to arrive at the period of time when Jesus ascends into heaven. And it is at this time that Jesus is finally physically present with His apostles. And it is at this moment that He gives them the last command that He will ever give before He goes to be with the Father. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 28, 18, look at the following words with me. 
It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is often referred to as the Great Commission, or the commissioning of the church to go and make disciples. Several years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and actually there were some people in this church that were with me at that conference, and uh, I was wandering around the bookstore, and as I often do at occasions like this, I was looking for swag, which is when people will give you items to try and convince you to come and listen to their pitch for a few minutes. And at this particular gathering, there were several missions agencies that were trying to tell you about what they were doing and who they were supporting around the world. One of those agencies was the largest missions agency in the entire world, which is the International Mission Board. And one of the things that they were giving out was a t-shirt. And this is the shirt that they were giving out. This is what they gave me. You might notice on the front, it has a Greek word. It is the word porothentes. And as they were handing this out, the man explained to me, he said, I want you to understand what this means. This word porothentes is the word in Greek, go. And we get that from the book of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where it says that we are to go. So we want to encourage you, maybe you are supposed to go. Or maybe, if you're not supposed to go, you're supposed to send others who will go. So he was pointing me to this word. And um, I really appreciate this man, and I appreciate the uh, enthusiasm that he had, and I appreciate his ministry. Uh, but that's actually not what this word says. Um, this word, poruthentes, does not say go. But I understand exactly why he has this dilemma, why he has this confusion. Have you ever been watching a movie that's been dubbed from another language, uh, like maybe from Japanese, and it will say something like, in Japanese it says, Nihongo wa hanashimasu, and in English it just says, yes, or it's coming from Korean, and it says something like, anyanasueyo, and then in English it says, hi, and you're like, how is that the same thing? That can't possibly be what they are actually saying. Well, the reality is language is really difficult, and translation is really hard, and sometimes grammar just does not easily shift from one language to another, and this is one of those places where, unfortunately, in English, it just does not capture what it really is saying in the Greek very well. You see, the word porothentes is translated into your Bible as the word go, but that's actually not the verb of the sentence. It makes it appear that that is the main thrust of what Jesus is saying, go, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have said to command you. Commanded you. Um, it looks like go is the verb, but it's actually not. Go is a passive participle. Now, I realize when I say passive participle, like most of the people in this room just mentally go to sleep, right? I realize nobody cares about grammar that much, but grammar really matters if God is the one speaking. We need to know what God is actually saying, and here's the key. The word porothentes means as you are going. It is an assumption in the command that you will go, and it doesn't say how far you'll go. It just says that you will be going, as in you will be going throughout life. And as you are going, the command of the sentence, the thrust of the sentence, the point of the sentence is make disciples. That is what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. Disciples, go make disciples. So what is a disciple of Jesus? Simply put, it is somebody who has trusted in the good news of the gospel, 
for the forgiveness of their sins. This is displayed in the fact that they will then seek to be like Jesus. In other words, we can look at John's uh, way of putting this in 1 John 2, 6. He says, whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, disciples start to look like their masters. The reason I highlight this is I want you to be reminded that just because somebody says they are a disciple or says they are a follower of Christ, if their life does not begin to shift and turn to look more like him, then it is a false profession. A disciple begins to walk as Jesus walked. Now, we, we don't actually see the early church using the term disciple very often. This is absolutely not their favorite way of talking about what it means to be a Christian. In fact, we never see the word disciple used in any of the letters of Paul or any of the epistles of John or any of the letters of Peter. The way that we often see them expressing the concept of becoming a disciple is through the two terms, repent and believe. For example, the very first time the apostles ever put into practice the Great Commission was on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost occurred 10 days after Jesus had made that commissioning statement. So he ascends into heaven, they go to Jerusalem, and they wait for him as, as he wait for the Spirit to come. And the tenth day, the Spirit of God comes, they go out, and they proclaim the good news in the marketplace. And we don't know what most of them were saying, but we do know what Peter was saying, and how he understood this great commission, and how he proclaimed the gospel. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you overlay his sermon over the Great Commission, you will see that Peter understood that repentance is a key to being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus said, make disciples and baptize them. Peter says, repent and be baptized. What does it look like to be a disciple? It looks like repentance. Repentance just means turning away from your previous way of thinking and turning to God and His way. It means trusting Him as the master of your life. Later on in the book of Acts, we see many different ways that the gospel is explained, but one of the best ways we see this is when Paul was given the opportunity to share the gospel with a Philippian jailer. Now, in that experience, we won't go through the details, but the, the, the point is this man asks the best question any unsaved person can ask, which is, what must I do to be saved? That is the fastball over the heart of the plate. And how does Paul respond? He says to him that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Clearly, we learn from Paul that becoming a disciple means believing in Jesus. But there's a lot of people who believe that Jesus existed or believe things about Jesus that are not disciples. So what exactly does someone have to believe? The answer is those first three sermons that we covered in the series about the gospel, that is what somebody must believe in order to be saved. They must believe the good news. And let me quickly show you two proofs of this in Paul's writings. First, when he is speaking to the Ephesian church about how they had to had come to follow Christ, he writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says here. He says that they heard the truth, which is the gospel, and they believed that which led them to salvation and sealed them with the Spirit. 
Another example is probably one of the most famous verses in the book of Romans, Romans 1.16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Belief only leads to salvation if it is belief in the true gospel, for it is the gospel, the good news, the message of Christ that has power to save. Another angle that we see presented by Paul is the notion of being reconciled to God. Reconciliation is necessary if there is a break in the relationship, if there is a division between parties. And here we see Paul write in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And what did he do? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, what is evangelism? Evangelism is the attempt to make disciples by pointing people to Jesus through belief in the gospel and repentance of sins so that they might be reconciled to God. Which leads us now to our second question, and that is the question, who? And we are going to answer this in two distinct ways. First, we are going to answer the question, who is supposed to make disciples? And then we are going to ask the question, who is our target? Who are we supposed to be making into disciples? So for the sake of time, I'm not going to make an extensive argument here, but I think it's worth taking a moment to point to the fact that if you are a Christian, this great commission is a command for you. It is an expectation that all believers will be disciple makers. I want to show you just one implicit truth where we see an example for us and one explicit command where we see that you are told to do this. Let's first consider an implicit example. When the church was just getting started, all of the Christians in the world were in one place. They were all in Jerusalem. There were 3,000 that got saved on that first Pentecost Sunday, and then we see that over the following weeks that the church continued to expand and grow and radically grow, not just like drips and drabs, but thousands of people were added to the people of God, but they were all remaining in one city. They all were in Jerusalem. That is until all of a sudden, persecution began to heat up, and the Sanhedrin dragged Stephen out into the public arena, and they threw rocks at him until he died. And at that point, a lot of people who were visiting on that Pentecost Sunday and had been traveling to Jerusalem but had homes elsewhere said, you know what, maybe it's time for me to pack up and go back home. But they didn't just go home, they took the gospel with them. When they went, this is what we see directly after the stoning of Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now please notice, these were not the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. These were the regular, average Joe church members. And they went and took the gospel with them as far as they traveled. And I want to point you to one single Greek word from this verse. It should be up here on the screen for you. It's going to be that word where it says that they preached. That word is translated, that word that we see as preached, is this word in Greek, which I will not, trans- that I will not read for you because I can't, but 
I want you to see on the one side, that is the Greek word, and over here we have what's called the transliteration, which is the same word, just using our lettering so that you can read it and kind of see what it would sound like. That word right there should look familiar to you if you are paying attention to our subject matter today. This is the first occasion in the Bible where we get the word evangelism. This is where we get our English word evangelism right here. This is not the word that is usually used for preaching in the Bible. What I am doing right now is the Greek word caruso. What they did was the Greek word evangelism, or however you would pronounce this word. And what they would go out and do is announce the good news. If you were to literally translate this word, it says they were good newsing people. That's what they did. They went out and gave good news to people. As they traveled, they preached the word. This is what the church has been doing since its earliest days. We can see the example of the early church that it was not just spread by those at the top. It was not just spread by the 12 apostles. It was not just spread through preaching in a pulpit. It was done by people living out their lives and faithfully proclaiming about Christ in their spheres of influence. That is how it has always worked. But we also do see that there are many clear commands where we are told this is what you are called to do, to evangelize. For example, we've already seen how Paul speaks to believers and says that we are ambassadors entrusted with the good news of reconciliation. But I want to show you another example of this that we see in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What are outsiders? Those are people who are outside the church who are unbelievers, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How do you communicate the faith to those who are not saved? Are you seasoning your words? Are they delicately prepared and thoughtfully applied? Are you making good use of your time in life with them? This command from Paul calls us to be able to give an answer to each person who is outside of the body of Christ. This is a command that should be super convicting to most of us, myself included. This means that there is nobody who is out of bounds. Consider that Paul was a persecutor of the church. Matthew was a tax collector. Peter was an average Joe fisherman. Augustine was a sexual deviant. Martin Luther worshipped saints, which I would call idols. George Whitfield was an extreme legalist, and they were all sinners. And you are sinners, and I am a sinner. And God saves sinners. There is nobody too far gone that the blood of Christ cannot redeem them. Who is a candidate to hear the gospel? Every last person on the planet is a candidate. So who is called to go? Every disciple is called to go. And who are we called to go to? Everyone. Now that we've considered the who, let's now see what the Word of God says about the when and where we are to evangelize. If you still have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 28, you'll see that Jesus tells them that they are supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, I want you to be beware here a little bit because what often happens, I think, when we are reading this phrase is that our mind initially goes to the far ends of the nations. We think about the Philippines, and we think about Italy, and we think about Papua New Guinea, and we think about places that have been unreached. When he says, go to the nations, that does mean those places, but it does not eliminate this place as well. This means he is speaking, yes, 
about the farthest reaches of deepest, darkest Africa, but it also means he is speaking about your neighbors and your family members and even your dentist. Remember what the angel said when they announced the birth of Christ? Remember Luke chapter 2 when that angel appeared and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This good news is good news that is to be proclaimed throughout the ends of the earth. It is supposed to be proclaimed to people without distinction of age or nationality or ethnicity or language or any other quality that could possibly divide us. Wherever you are, that is your audience. Consider what Paul says in Philippians 2, 14 through 15. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, if you continue to read the rest of this chapter, you will see that he gives some examples of two different people who do this and shows what that looks like. The main point he's saying is, look, the world around you is darkness. The world around you is pitch black, and you are a light in that darkness. And as a Christian, wherever you are, your calling is to shine in the midst of that darkness. Some are called to be missionaries on the foreign field, but most of us, honestly, are just called to announce the good news to those who are around us right here. The book of Revelation tells us that in heaven there are going to be people from every tongue and tribe and nation surrounding the throne and worshiping the Lord, but how are they going to get there? They are going to get there because somebody has proclaimed the good news to them and they have believed, and hopefully that includes people from the farthest reaches of the earth as well as people in your neighborhood. Let's share the gospel. But when, how often, and how soon after being saved are we called to announce this good news? I want to share with you what Peter tells the Christian church. He tells all people, not just leaders. He says to be ready in season and out of season, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. When I was in high school, I played basketball, and I was on a, I was on a team with a bunch of other guys, and during that season of basketball, we would have these rules for one another. These were not things that were enforced by those in charge. This was not a coach's decision. It was just something as players we agreed to do, and one of those rules was during the basketball season, we did not drink any soda. But you better believe that as soon as that season was over, I was supersizing my meals at McDonald's, and I was getting a full glass of high C, right? Here's the thing. I had an off-season, But what Paul is telling you is, for the Christian, in terms of evangelism, there is no such thing as an off-season. You are to be ready in season and out of season, which is just a fancy way of saying all of the time. You are to be ready always. When it comes to evangelism, your responsibility is to announce the good news everywhere you go as long as you are alive. I like to say that evangelism is a lifestyle not an event. Now, it's great to be able to have events, like we could do something in the parking lot of the church or going around our neighborhood. Those are good things, but that's not ultimately what evangelism is. It is a consistent pattern of ongoing ministry to those who don't know Christ. So now that we've considered what, who, where, and why, let's consider the very important question of how. 
How do we actually take people who are enemies of God, people who are ignorant of the truth, people who are opposed to the way of Christ, how do we take those people and cause them to be disciples of Jesus Christ? Now, what I'm going to do right now is rapidly go through six ways to answer that question from Scripture. First, we share the gospel with words, not just example. One of the most often repeated phrases that people speak about in the modern church is this quote that says, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. And they often attribute this to St. Francis of Assisi. But there's a couple of problems with this quote, and the first one is that St. Francis of Assisi never said this. In fact, he never said anything even remotely close to this. And if you know anything about this guy, first of all, you would know he was absolutely bizarre. If you want to know some crazy stories, I would love to share them. But for the sake of time, I'll just tell you that this man believed in preaching with words, so much so that when no people would listen to him, he would go out into the woods and he would preach to trees and rocks and birds and squirrels because he believed in using words. He did not say this, and he never would have said anything like this. Secondly, this quote is problematic because it is impossible to preach the gospel without words. Doing so would be preaching a false gospel with you at its center. It would be telling people, look at me, rather than telling them, look at Christ. Nobody will ever and has ever intuited the gospel. Nobody is ever going to see you as a friendly neighbor or a kind customer and then say to themselves, you know what I need to do? I need to bow my knee to Christ and repent of my sins and follow him for the rest of my life. Nobody will do that. At the very best, what people will do is they will look at you and they will say, wow, that guy's a really nice guy. You know what I need to do? I need to be a nice guy too. Maybe I'll clean up my act a little bit. That is called moralism. Now, I think it's a good thing if, the Christian, if Christian people influence the culture of the world. I think that's good. I wish that happened more. But it cannot ultimately save people. Making people nicer or friendlier will not get them into heaven. That is not how it works. That, at best, could become moralistic therapeutic deism. Consider what Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 17 says. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, through the word of Christ. It comes to us through words. You cannot preach the gospel without words. So, what do we do? We preach with words, not just example. Secondly, we preach the gospel by example, not just words. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, he said, "'You are the light of the world.'" A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The clear point that Jesus is making is that without a lifestyle of godliness, we are going to make it, if not just difficult, maybe impossible to have any credibility with people when it comes to the gospel. They're just going to look at you and think that you're a hypocrite. 
you have to understand that they are going to hold you in a higher, to a higher standard than they hold themselves. Perhaps you have noticed this. And when they see you honoring the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances, that's when you have an opportunity to leverage your life into a gospel conversation. How is it that you were able to keep your mouth shut when that guy just kept going on and on? Well, let me tell you. I have a king who was in much worse circumstances, and when he was reviled, he kept his mouth shut. And he's my example, and he's the one who died for my sin, and that you take that good thing, and as it says, you let them see your good works, and you reflect all glory to the Lord. You give all glory to your Father who is in heaven. Keep none for yourself. Third, we share the gospel in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, there's a lot of things that I could cover in this section. This is very broad, I realize that. But I want to hit just a couple of main things that have become problematic in the recent years of the church. In particular, over the last 150 years of American Christianity, the primary way that the church has chosen to share the gospel is by telling people, I just want you to know God loves you. And as they have shared this, they have left out some of the most important aspects of sharing the gospel. And then they proceed to describe God as some kind of a grandfatherly figure who's just in heaven kind of wringing his hands, hoping maybe someday I'll get an opportunity to restore that relationship with them. I just can't wait for them to come back. Will they ever hear my voice? Will they ever turn? And that is often followed up by telling somebody, you know what you need to do? Just pray this prayer after after me. Just repeat my words. And then, bada bing, bada boom, you're saved, right? Well, that's not how the Bible presents evangelism at all. That's not the way the gospel is ever proclaimed in the scriptures. In fact, the best place to see evangelism taking place is in the book of Acts. And as you read through the book of Acts, where that gospel goes from being in one room, in the upper room on Pentecost, by the end of the book, it is all throughout the entire Roman Empire. How does it get there? They go and proclaim the gospel. And we see many of those conversations recorded. And what do we see in that book? We see that the apostles never once use the love of God as the main thrust of their gospel presentation. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, it never once ever, ever, ever uses the word love. That's not how they express it. Does God love sinners? Absolutely. But that's just not how the apostles shared the gospel. And that's not, I believe, the main way that we are called to share the gospel. And definitely, we never see them saying, follow me in this sinner's prayer and just repeat after me and then you're saved. They never tell someone, invite Jesus into your heart. When we share the gospel, it is our job to be as biblical as possible. Like the apostles, we should tell people, you are a sinner and you need to repent and believe the good news for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you will do that, you will be saved. And today, if you are here and you don't know Christ, that good news is for you. If you trust in the good news that your life has been a rebellion against God, but there is freedom and forgiveness in Christ through the cross, then you will be saved. It's important that we make our gospel presentation as biblical and scriptural and as in alignment with the apostles' teaching as we possibly can. We must inform them of the bad news, and then we must inform them of the good news of Christ. We must share the gospel in accordance with the scriptures. Fourthly, we evangelize with a plan. Let's look back at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 for a moment. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. For now, I simply want to zoom in on those few words there, prepared to make a defense. 
I am absolutely convinced that most of the time we miss opportunities to share the gospel because we are not prepared. We do not prepare our minds by studying the Scripture and knowing it well. We do not prepare our hearts in prayer. We do not prepare our eyes to look for opportunities. We do not prepare our emotions for the inevitable fact that most of the people we tell about Christ are not going to hear us. We do not prepare. Let's prepare ourselves for action as faithful ambassadors. I think of Benjamin Franklin who once said that if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. That's what we are doing in terms of evangelism. Fifthly, we share the gospel with gentleness and respect. As you look up here, how does Peter tell us to share the gospel? He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Perhaps you have seen people doing something other than this as they are sharing the gospel with others. I will tell you that unlike Islam, Christianity is not designed to be spread by force. If you look through history and see how North Africa went from being a predominantly Christian society to being overwhelmingly Islamic. How did that happen? It happened because they said, if you do not bow the knee to Allah, we will execute you. And then, unlike scientism, Christianity is not designed to be spread through intellectual snobbery and looking down your nose at the person who doesn't believe like you do. Christianity is to be shared and expressed with gentleness and with respect. And finally, sixth, we evangelize to be faithful and we let God be fruitful. Here's the thing. Jesus tells you to do something that you can't do. He says, go and make disciples. Well, how do you make someone a disciple? The the reality is you can't. You cannot change somebody's heart. You cannot convict them of sin. All you can do is faithfully proclaim the truth and announce the goodness of God. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but it is God alone who could give the increase. Some of the most faithful Christians in history shared the gospel often and faithfully, yet had very few people actually hear them and believe. Just be faithful. The fields are white for harvest, and the workers are few. Just be faithful. It is God who will bring the increase. Rest in the fact that God will use you and your words to accomplish all of His purposes. So now that we've answered the what, who, where, when, and how, Let's go to the final question. It's perhaps the most important question that we need to answer today. That is the question, why? Here's the thing. I don't think you're actually going to go out and do this. I do not think you're going to actually go out and share the gospel. I do not think that you are going to live a lifestyle of evangelism. I don't think you're going to do that unless you get this answer correct. If you do not understand this or, or have this as the foundation, at best you're just going to go out and make attempts. Occasionally you might try, or you'll do something that is appearing like evangelism. But I do not think that you will have a consistent lifestyle of proclaiming the good news all the time to all people unless you get this one answer correct. I hope you're still in Matthew 28. Most of the time when people talk about the Great Commission, they start at verse 19. And that's not a terrible thing, but that's actually not where Jesus starts. Jesus begins at verse 18 where he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what is called a grounding statement. Why do we go make disciples? We do that because all authority has been given to him. And this means at least three distinct things that I'd like to briefly share with you. First, it means that if he has all authority, he can tell you what to do. So by commanding you, 
This is a demand that Christ has for his people. We evangelize because he says so. But secondly, it also means that everyone that you are going to are responsible to him. He is king over everyone, whether they recognize it or not. For those who are reading through the book of Matthew right now with our church, you will know that Jesus is king. That is the whole point of the book of Matthew. Over and over and over, it is punching you in the face with the information that this is what people were looking like as a ki- looking for as a king, but this is the real king right here. And at the end of the, go- the book, it gives you a statement of dominion. It tells you exactly who is under his power. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. I am king of all of it, which means every single person that you ever talk to about the gospel is under the rule of Christ. They might be in rebellion, but he is their owner, he is their master, he is their ruler, and they will bow the knee to him either in this life or the next. So you need to know that you can go out in power because you've been, been given the authority to do it. You've been given the right and the responsibility by the king himself. You are a magisterial employee of the king. Go and tell people. Therefore, we make disciples. But the third and final implication is the most significant and the one that I think will ground you and cause you to actually be motivated to go and share the good news of Christ. And that is that the fact that Jesus has all authority as king indicates that he is worthy of all honor and praise. You see, if your motivation is primarily because you love other people and you desire to have a a good relationship with other people, then eventually you are going to stop evangelizing them because as you tell them about the gospel, it is going to cause a strain. They're going to see there's a distinction between you and I, and I don't get on board with what you are saying. Therefore, there is a strain in the relationship, and eventually that will cause you to just stop. But if your main motivation is not that other person, rather the main motivation is Christ himself, that he is worthy to have the bride for which he died, that he is worthy to have heaven filled with followers who worship him at all times, that he is worthy to have everyone bow the knee right now to him. If you believe that, then you will be able to fearlessly go out and proclaim the good news to everyone whether they want to hear it or not. You are able to proclaim because you are constrained by the love that Christ has for you. Jesus is king. Therefore, he is worthy. So let's go and make disciples. So this is where we land the plane of this series. We've talked about the message of the Bible, and now we've considered the mission of the Bible. So having trusted this gospel, let us be the church, let us be discipled, and let's go make more disciples. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you came to us by sending your Son to be an example and to be a testimony, and to be the one who would save and redeem us. Lord, we pray now that we would see him and that we would likewise go, that we would go to all around us, everyone in our sphere of influence, and that we would make disciples. Father God, I pray that we would do so in such a way that we would honor you, that we would do so in a way that is in alignment with the Scripture, that we would do so in a way that is gentle and respectful. But God, I pray that we would do it. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to evangelize those who don't yet know you. And may we see you bring in much fruit. May you, Lord, cause our efforts to be constantly uh, visible 
as we see people coming into this church who would say, I did not know Christ, but somebody in this room was willing to share him with me, and now I have trusted and have followed Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would see much growth in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.